families and my parents gathered for the very first uh, GCF worship service. Now, two years before that, uh, my dad uh, had stepped aside from a very lucrative career uh, in insurance sales to serve God full-time in ministry. And I'm sure over the years, he's thought to himself, I could have made so much more money in the insurance industry. But he set that aside over 20 years ago uh, to pursue full-time ministry. And as a result, this morning, there'll be roughly 850 people that gather across three campuses in Spokane as a result of him starting GCF almost 20 years ago. So he's made a lot of sacrifices, and God in his grace uh, has blessed the ministry of GCF. And I'm so thankful that my dad set aside that lucrative career uh, to serve God full-time in Christian ministry. And we've called him out of retirement this morning to come and preach to us. The Bible says we're supposed to give honor to whom honor is due, so let's thank and honor Bill Farley for preaching this morning. Thank you, Dave. I'm just a humble servant that was no, is this on? It really wasn't a sacrifice at all. I did it because I wanted to do it. And so uh, the one that made the sacrifice was my lovely wife. Most women would have shot their husband had he proposed such a thing. But um, she supported me 100%. Can we start with prayer and ask for God's help? Lord Jesus, this morning I come to you and humble myself in my weakness and confess my great need and the need of those listening. So we pray that the sermon this morning would be um, an opportunity for us to meet with you, to to come face to face with you, to know you better, and to love you better. Father, send your Holy Spirit to us on the basis of your Son's death and resurrection. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start with a story. I was raised, uh, uh, born in 1948, so I went to grade school in the 50s. And some of you that are older will remember those days. It was the post-war baby boom. There were 50 students in my grade school class. I went to a Catholic school, uh, and I had a little nun named Sister Nina Pinta, who was about 70 and was about my wife's height. She was about five feet tall. She topped the third grade in the fifth grade. And I remember uh, one day, her at the blackboard, with, and she drew a big circle on the blackboard. She said, this is your soul. This is Roman Catholic teaching. I'm not saying this to beat up on Catholics, but to give you an example. This is your soul, big picture, big circle on the blackboard. Then she took the chalk and she made some little marks all over that circle. And she said, here's how you get into heaven. She said, you have to be righteous to get into heaven. And here's how it works. If there's more empty space on your soul than black marks, which are sins, you'll get into heaven. If there's more black marks on your soul than empty space, you'll go to hell. And I thought, that makes sense. That was, I'm, you know, fifth grade, and I carried that with me till I was converted in my 20s. As that is a f- false teaching. And that is why we had a Reformation, because that teaching was, was uh, the prevailing teaching in the Catholic Church. Now, she made it really simple. Theologians would make it more, much more complicated than that. 
they would say Catholics believe in infused righteousness, which means you work to produce your own righteousness. And righteousness is the thing that we need to have to get into heaven. It's the great issue in life. Really nothing matters in life but obtaining righteousness because those who are declared righteous by God will go to heaven where they will enjoy uh, joy inexpressible and full of glory, love that surpasses knowledge, and peace that surpasses understanding for eternity, okay, in a new heavens and a new earth. But those that lack righteousness will go off into eternal conscious torment forever. There were several things wrong with the nun's uh, portrayal of righteousness. The first one is it showed, it portrayed to us a very low view of God because we do need to have righteousness, but the righteousness that God requires is a circle with no marks on it of any kind. Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's another way of describing the righteousness that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3. No marks of any kind on the circle. Well, hold on, Bill. Nobody's perfect. That's right. That's the problem we're facing. We're not perfect. We need to be considered perfect or righteous in God's sight. And the second thing that's wrong with this, so we have a low view of God. God's going to accept people that are, that are uh, unrighteous into his kingdom, and we have a high view of man. Man, we're good enough to produce our own righteousness. If we just do a few good things, then God will be okay with us. I heard Muhammad Ali interviewed on TV. He, had, he died of Parkinson's disease a few years ago, and right before he died, he was, he was a Muslim, and he was asked about why he thought he would go to heaven, and he used the exact same example my Catholic nun used. He drew a picture of a circle, it's a soul, and he said, this is what Muslims believe, and he went through the exact same thing. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the common view of the man on the street. If I'm just as good as average, I'll get into heaven. But that's not the view of the Bible. The Bible places a much, much higher standard before us. We must be declared righteous as God is righteous. We must be clothed in God's righteousness, an alien righteousness, Luther said, a righteousness that's outside of us. Although we are actually not righteous, we need God to declare us righteous to obtain eternal life. And righteousness is the subject of the first three chapters of Romans. Paul opens the discussion after an introduction in Romans with verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. I'm going to read it, but I want you to notice the use of the word righteous in this passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, what I just said to you, if you try to explain the gospel to somebody and you have to explain to them that you have to be perfect to get into heaven, and that if you're not, God's wrath will rest upon you forever. That's going to be easy for you to feel ashamed of the gospel, isn't it? Okay? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I want you to notice Paul's use of the Old Testament. He quotes Habakkuk. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The good news is meaningless to those who already think they are righteous. If you have the Catholic view or the Muslim view or the view of the man on the street, you're going to be yawning when somebody presents the gospel to you. 
But if you understand your desperate need for righteousness and your complete inability to produce any righteousness in yourself, and you believe that the Bible is God's inspired word, you're going to run to the gospel for help. And Paul understands that. So from Romans chapter 118, the next verse, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he describes the bad news, what I call the bad news. He describes the human predicament. He knows that we need to be convinced that we have a really big problem, and that a problem that we don't understand naturally, a problem that is revealed to us by God. So he begins, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of mankind. And then Paul proceeds to discuss the final judgment, where he says, if you're unrighteous, you'll be confronted with wrath and fury, the same two words used in Psalm 2. God the Father describes his wrath and fury, and Paul picks up on that and and attributes that to the final judgment. Then he tells how the Jews are in equal place with the Gentiles. At the beginning of chapter 3, he goes through a long litany of sins, and then he says, for none are righteous. No one is righteous. No, not one. So what does that do with the nun's circle? See? Mother Teresa isn't righteous. The best person you know is a million miles away from righteousness. You cannot earn righteousness by human effort. This is not something you can produce or perform or get by trying a little bit harder. Okay? It's moral perfection. Then in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, Paul gives us the good news, the solution. How am I going to get righteousness? And now he describes it. And he uses he discusses two kinds of righteousness. The first is a gift of righteousness that God gives to us, the righteousness of God. And the second, in the last couple of verses, is an internal quality in God himself. It's God's righteousness. So as we go through these verses, we'll look at the two different ways that Paul uses righteousness. Luther was hung up on this initially. He could not get the good news. Because when he saw Romans chapter 1, the, the righteous. Uh, and Paul's use of the righteousness of God, he thought it, he didn't see that as a gift of righteousness that God gives to us. Luther saw that as the quality in God that causes him to be holy, to be angry with sinners, et cetera, et cetera. And so he, could, he couldn't get the gospel. And then one day the light went on, and Paul saw that the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and in 321, was this amazing gift that God gives to us. And he said, it was as if I was transported into paradise when I understood the issues. I want to mention, secondly, that the word justification or justify is also very important. And Paul will use that word here. To be justified means to be declared righteous in biblical terms. We use the term self-justification. You approach your five-year-old and you say, you know, why did you bite your little sister? And your five-year-old immediately begins to justify themselves. What are they doing? They're declaring their innocence. When Paul talks about justification here, he's talking about God declaring us innocent, God declaring us righteous. Most commentators consider this the central text in the Bible, the most important text in the Bible. And the main point is this, for those who will humble themselves, believe the bad news and run to the gospel solution, God promises us the gift of righteousness. It can't be earned. 
It can only be received by renouncing my personal righteousness and receiving God's gift of righteousness by faith. And incredibly, and most importantly, God does this without compromising his own righteousness. The passage makes four points. The first point is a precedent for righteousness in chapter 3, verse 21. The second point is the need for our righteousness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Third, the gift of righteousness that God gives to us as we believe by faith. And lastly, the vindication of God's righteousness. So, the, first of all, the precedent for righteousness, the need for righteousness, the gift of righteousness, and the vindication of God's righteousness. I'd like you to look down with me again in your Bibles, very carefully, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God, Paul is using it here now, as the term is being described as this gift of righteousness that God gives to us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That means it's manifested apart from human works. The law means I'm working. That's what the Catholic nun was teaching us. You work to get your, obtain your own righteousness. But Paul says, no, no, it's apart from the law. It's apart from human effort, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul quotes Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by their faith. Two times the prophet Jeremiah, I just finished reading Jeremiah this week, two times the prophet Jeremiah says, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. He declares the gospel. Now, I'm not sure that Jeremiah fully understood what that meant when he said it, but he said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All kinds of things like that in the Old Testament. Paul's saying, it's apart from the law, but the law and the prophets predicted it, bared witness to it, uh, told us it was coming. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What's the main point in this first one is the precedent for receiving God's righteousness is giving up on the law, human effort. Here's a way you can test yourself. It's called the good day, bad day scenario, and you've probably heard somebody uh, describe this before. You get up in the morning, your alarm goes off at 6, you don't push the snooze button, you get right out of bed this day, and you, and you get dressed, and you put on some coffee, and you spend a half hour in devotions. Then you have breakfast with your family, you lead your family in prayer, you go to work, you have a good day at work, you get along with your employees, you, you're, you're really productive, you get a lot of stuff done. You come home, and you have dinner with your family, then you conduct family devotions after dinner with your family for 15 minutes, and then maybe you read some spiritual material before you go to bed, and you go to bed, and as you're laying in bed, you're thinking, it's really good. God loves me. God likes me. I've performed really well today. The next morning, you get up and the alarm clock goes off and you hit the snooze button once. Goes off again, you hit the snooze button the second time. Goes off again, oh, you hit the snooze button the third time. Now it's too late to do prayer. So you rush down and get breakfast. You don't pray. You go to work. You have a fight with a fellow employee. You, think you don't get anything done. You come home you have dinner with your family, you get in a fight with your wife at dinner, and then you don't do family devotions because you've been fighting with your wife, and you go to bed, and you're laying there, and you think, I didn't perform. God doesn't love me. Now, that is the way we all work, isn't it? At least I work that way. I have to fight that really, really hard. I have to say, no, 
The truth is, Bill, it doesn't depend upon your performance. The righteousness of God is apart from the law and the prophets. It's a gift of faith that God gives to us. Now, we can please God and we can displease God, but God will never, ever withdraw his love from us because we've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. And Christ earned God's love, and therefore God sees you as someone who's earned his love because of Christ's righteousness. And and because God is infinitely just, he will reward you as Christ deserves to be rewarded, despite your performance or your lack of performance. So the test is, can we humble ourselves and approach the throne of grace and receive the free gift of righteousness and live in that on a daily basis? And understand that God loves us irrespective of whether we've had a good day or a bad day. That God's love does not go up when I've had a good day, and God's love does not diminish when I've had a bad day. Yes, God will discipline me, but because He loves me, He will discipline me. And yes, I can disappoint God. I can grieve the Holy Spirit, but God will never, ever withdraw His love from me. He'll never remove me from His family. He'll never quit loving me. That's our first point. We have to humble ourselves and believe the gospel. The precedent is a humble faith. Point number two, the need, our unrighteousness. Look at the adverse, last half of verse 22 and verse 23. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I, I was puzzled over this verse for years because it's a really unusual description of sin. Paul is describing sin here in a way that that it isn't described in other places in the Bible. And here's the big picture. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28, where God tells us that he created man on the sixth day in his image and likeness. To be created, and then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? With the image and likeness of God. Now, another way to describe the image and likeness of God, because it's a moral image, image and likeness, is the glory of God. We are, God created man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with human beings which reflect his moral glory back to him. In other words, his righteousness. We would, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, we would have been fully capable of having a soul with no marks on it. A holy soul, a righteous soul, uh, a soul that glorified God. But all men have sinned and fall, fallen short of that ultimate objective that God created us to fulfill. And therefore, we have a really big problem. We are offensive to God. We are alienated from God. In fact, as Josh prayed this morning, we are under God's wrath. He's angry with us in our natural state. But God doesn't want to be angry with us. God wants to be reconciled to us. So our problem is all have sinned and fallen short of the reason for which God created us, which was to bring praise, honor, and glory to him. And the third point is in verse 24 and 25. We'll spend a little bit more time on this one. It's the gift justified by grace through faith. Please look down with me at verse 24 and 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So I'm going to quickly um, discuss some terms in this text because they're highly technical terms and we need to understand them. We mentioned justification already. 
We are justified, declared righteous by His grace. What does grace mean in the Bible? Well, many people often simplify it by using the acronym G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's true in so far, everything in that acronym is true, but it doesn't go far enough to really understand grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense to those who deserve judgment from God. We have to add that little clause on the end to understand grace. It's God rewarding us with the reward that Christ deserves, even though we deserve the punishment that our sins deserve. We deserve the cross, basically. And so it's this incredible magnanimity on God's part, this incredible God giving his enemies reward. Imagine someone breaking into your house in the middle of the night and uh, raping your daughter, burning your house down, and then taking off. You pursue the person, you find him, you put a gun to his head because you're, you're intent on revenge, and he says, have mercy on me, please have mercy on me, don't kill me. And because you're gracious, like God is gracious, you say, okay, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to give you an all-expense paid trip to Hawaii for two months and on Kanapala Beach on Maui in a hotel that costs $500 a day because I'm like God. I'm gracious. I reward those that deserve judgment. That's what grace is. Now, that's not a fair example because our sin is much more grievous than that guy raping your daughter and burning your house down. We know that because of what our sin deserves. What our sin will get if we don't embrace the gospel, which is eternal conscious torment in hell forever. Many people say that is unreasonable, that God is being unjust. God is punishing us much more than we deserve. No, God is perfectly just. The cross shows us that. The problem is we don't understand sin and how grievous sin is and how serious sin is in God's sight. Grace. Justified by His grace as a gift. I won't talk about redemption today that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. To propitiate somebody means to take away their anger. And so the cross is a propitiation. God is moving to remove, to remove His anger from us because we, we can do nothing to remove God's anger from us, so God must do it. So He sends His Son to come and die on the cross so that His anger can be propitiated, taken away and removed, and that there could be peace between us. And the propitiation takes place by His blood. Why is it by blood? Blood is kind of a, seems like an old-fashioned idea that we would be concerned about propitiating God with blood, with a blood sacrifice. Jesus dies on the cross. He sheds His blood. Well, that's because in the Old Testament, when they sacrificed animals, they noticed that when the blood ran out of the animal's body, the animal died. And so, and they connected that with uh, God's uh, threat in Genesis chapter 2, on the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will die. And since the shedding of blood signified death, uh, therefore Jesus goes to the cross and sheds his blood. He dies in our place. He takes the punishment on the cross that we deserve. And all of this is to be received by faith. Faith that's effective with God is faith that's coupled with repentance. 
It's not just belief in the facts that we're discussing this morning. It's belief in these facts coupled with trusting God. I trust God to fulfill His promises. I trust God to be good to me. I trust God to receive me and give me power to persevere to the end, as we sang this morning. I trust God to love me despite my lack of performance. I trust God to forgive me. And that, that understanding or agreement with the facts and then coupled with my trust in God must also be coupled with repentance, turning from sin. If I really trust God, I will turn from sin. I'll want to turn from sin. So faith that saves is, is an agreement with the facts of the gospel coupled with trust followed by turning from sin. No turning from sin, no saving faith. Let's read 24 and 25 again. We are justified by His grace, grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. He died in our place to be received by faith. God, how does this happen? God imputes His righteousness to you when you believe. Your faith unites you with Christ in such a way that Jesus, who lived a perfect life, he's the only one that had a soul with no marks in it. His, he was perfect. He never sinned by either omission or commission. He loved God the Father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength, and he loved his fellow man as he wanted to be loved. And as a result, when we put our faith in him, God unites us with him and that righteousness is imputed to us, and now we are going to be rewarded with the reward that Christ deserves. This is the most amazing news. Simultaneously, our sins get transferred to Christ through the, our union with Him. Jesus goes to the cross. God pours out His wrath on our sins. God's wrath is propitiated, and we are brought to a place of peace with God the Father. It's the most amazing news. Now, many of you have heard this before. But I know if you're like me, you never get tired of hearing it. You never get tired of hearing the gospel. So we've talked about the precedent to the receiving righteousness, and that precedent is a humble faith. Then we talked about the problem. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've talked about the gift, number three, justified by grace through faith alone. And lastly, the vindication. Righteousness satisfied and vindicated. Please look with me at verse 25 and 26, the last half of verse 25 and verse 26. This, meaning the cross, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this text is suggesting that God has a problem. God really doesn't have a problem, but humanly speaking, God has a problem. He has promised justice to sinners, and that is all God owes us is justice. He doesn't owe us mercy, grace, or love. He owes Christ mercy, grace, and love because Christ was righteous, but we're not righteous. You only owe someone to someone you only owe someone to someone to whom you're obligated. If we were righteous, God would be obligated to love us. Therefore, the only person to whom God is obligated is His Son. But, a corollary, 
when you put your faith in his son and you're united to him and his righteousness is imputed to you, now he's obligated to love you. I'm saying, using the word obligation as if God's reluctant, but there's no reluctance in God at all to love you, just joy at loving you, okay? But now he must love you if he's going to be just because you're righteous. God is righteous. He cannot lie. He cannot go back on his commitments. He cannot ignore either his threats or his promises. And he warned Adam, as we've already noted, on the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will die. Paul picks up this theme in Romans chapter 6. The wages, Paul says, the wages of sin are death. So God's problem is that righteousness compels him, his righteousness compels him to execute justice. Before God can forgive, sin must be punished with spiritual and physical death. However, there's a problem, and that's, we see that in verse 25. Paul says, this, meaning the cross, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over the former sins, okay? That's God's problem, because many sinned throughout the Old Testament, and justice did not immediately follow. Think about Abraham's sin of unbelief with Hagar. He sleeps with Hagar and produces Ishmael because he fails to believe. Think about Noah's drunkenness. After they, he, the ark settles on the mountain, he builds a vineyard, he gets drunk. God's very distressed with him. <laughs> Even worse, think about Judah, who's the head of the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah will come, sleeps with a temple prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law. We've got incest, we've got idolatry, We've got sexual immorality. We've got it all rolled into one package. But judgment didn't immediately follow in any of those cases. Think about David's adultery and murder. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and then murders Uriah to cover it up. And despite this, the prophet Nathan pronounces this sentence over David. You will not die. Your sin is forgiven. Remember, under the law, the penalty for adultery and murder, they were capital crimes. It was a death penalty by stoning. But the prophet says, you will not die. Your sin is forgiven. How can this be and God be righteous? That's the big question. So many Christians miss the point. They assume that it would be unrighteous for God to not forgive. They assume that God is obligated to be merciful and gracious, that it's God's job to be loving. But Paul assumes the exact opposite. God would be unrighteous if he failed to be just and punish sin. God's only obligation is to justice. So how can God forgive sin and still be just or righteous? That's the question. God must forgive in such a way that righteousness is vindicated. So verse 25 and 26 is Paul's explanation of this. Let's read it again. This, meaning the cross, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over all those former sins. The cross was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying the Old Testament saints put their faith in the Messiah to come, and therefore God was able to not bring justice to them immediately because Jesus was going to go to the cross and vindicate God's righteousness. He was going to take the death penalty and the punishment that these men deserve, and therefore God could overlook that in the Old Testament. But Paul's saying that this was very important to God. 
that we all understood that he was infinitely just and that no sins would occur that would not be punished either by the sinner or by Christ in that person's place. Here's the bottom line. At the cross, God justifies us. He declares us righteous while simultaneously showing himself the exquisite, exquisitely just punisher of all sin and evil, past, present, and future. In other words, God saves us in a way that doesn't depreciate his own internal righteousness. Rather, the cross vindicates God's righteousness. It vindicates his justice. It vindicates his holiness, his wrath, and his hatred of evil while simultaneously lavishing us with love, mercy, grace, compassion, patience, all those wonderful things, and forgiveness of our sins. Here's James Denny, a 19th century British theologian, in his book, The Atonement in the Modern Mind, and the modern mind says it this way. The very glory of the atonement was that it manifested the righteousness of God. It demonstrated God's consistency with his own character, which would have been violated alike by indifference to sin and sinners. It is a recognition of this divine necessity not to forgive, but to forgive in a way which shows that God is irreconcilable to evil, which ultimately divides the interpreters of Christianity into evangelicals and not evangelicals And D.A. Carson says it this way, justification is first and foremost about the vindication of God. It's God-centered. God simultaneously preserves his justice while justifying the ungodly. The final cause is crucial so that he might be both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the big picture of God. And it may be a picture of God that you're uncomfortable with because you have a shallow view of God. But the bottom line is here, I I stress the fact that God's love is voluntary. He's obligated to be just. This makes God's love much greater because God's not obligated to be just and loving towards us. God God could pass over us and just give us all justice and not love us, and there would be, he would not violate his righteousness at all. But the amazing thing about the gospel is this, that God loves us when he doesn't have to, when he has no obligation to, and he pays an infinite, and I'm using the word infinite deliberately, an infinite cost to love us. His son goes to the cross and bears infinite pains and sorrows and torments to to propitiate God the Father's wrath so that God the Father can love us and be reconciled to us. And all this God has no obligation to do. It's all voluntary. It's the most amazing thing. It's, that's why Paul says, this is a love that surpasses knowledge. And when we get to heaven and we see the Lord face to face, we're going to have the most intimate knowledge of how horrendous our sin was in God's sight. And to the degree that we see that, we see and understand God's love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, they were to love our enemies. Well, why does God tell us, Jesus tell us to do that? Because that's what happened on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 tells us we were God's enemies. And he loved us and forgave us. And I don't know about you, but I have, time, I have people that have treated me bad at times. 
in my marriage. You get crosswise with your spouse at times. Your spouse offends you, hurts you, rejects you, whatever. And the, here's the test. Am I going to be like Christ? Am I going to have a share of the divine love in me? And am I tr- at least trying to love those that offend me? Those that hurt me? Those that wound me? I mean, sometimes you're trying and you can't do it. It's okay. All God expects us to do is try. But as Christians, we are obligated to try. How can we receive this kind of love from God and not be willing to give it out to others? It's the most horrendous hypocrisy if we do. Okay, what's our application this morning? Very quickly, we have four. First, humble yourself under the gospel. Because the next verse, 27, contains the most important application where Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our boasting? What does Paul mean? What's he referring to by boasting? He's saying, boasting about our our virtues. Well, so-and-so isn't a Christian. I'm a Christian because, I mean, this is me the first 20 years of my Christian experience. Deep inside my heart. I never would have admitted it, but it was like this. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. I wanted to be virtuous and righteous. And so I chose chose to be a Christian. I chose God, so-and-so. I mean, come on, when to get their act together? Why don't they... Do the same thing. Paul's saying that the gospel destroys that kind of inward boasting. It humbles us in the dust. We see that we deserve nothing but God's outpoured wrath. And yet God, at infinite expense to himself, has forgiven us and clothed us in his righteousness. Not because we were good. He chose us from before the foundation of the world. Not because we were good, but despite the fact that we weren't good. And so there's nothing to boast about. We, we have no, no grounds to look down on anyone else. All we have is, have mercy on me, Lord. I am an unworthy sinner. That's our only boast. That's the first application. Judy and I love to shop at Walmart. But sometimes, you know, I love the prices and I love the selection. And I like to go there. But sometimes I'm in Walmart and I see people that, wow. And I'm tempted to do this very thing we're talking about. I have to go back and remind myself of the gospel. No, Bill. No, Bill. The truth is, everything you have is a gift to you from God. You have nothing of which to boast. You looking down on anyone else is a horrendous thing. Repent of that right now. That's the effect of the gospel. Number two, believe the good news. If you're a young person here today, like high school, college, junior high, grade school, Maybe you've never understood this. Uh, maybe, maybe you're new here this morning. God is inviting you to believe the good news. To get in on the good news, all you need to do is confess your sin to God, believe the gospel, and turn to him and receive the free gift of righteousness. He'll take the circle on the chalkboard and make it all white. No marks. Completely righteous. It's an alien righteousness. Even though you're still a sinner, and even though you will continue to sin, God will consider you like his son, fully righteous. That is good news. Thirdly, fear God. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And wisdom equips us to understand the cross. The better way to say that is, as we sit at the foot of the cross, we we learn the fear of God from the cross and we obtain the wisdom of God which the cross displays to us. 
Where do we get the fear of the Lord? We get it at the foot of the cross. Jonathan Edwards said, never, never did God so manifest his hatred of sin as in the death of his only begotten son. Hereby he showed himself unappeasable to sin and that it was impossible for God to be at peace with it. Okay? When we see that, we love God, we feel secure in God's presence, we know that God will never withdraw his love from us, but we, when we see how he feels about sin, it causes us to fear him. It sobers us. It, it awakens us to spiritual realities. And then we begin to fear sin as well because we think, man, if God hates sin so much, he strung his son up on the cross and, and he's so infinitely just that he had to, all my sin had to be punished before I could be forgiven. And this is how God feels about my sin? Well, man, I have a whole different approach to sin now and a whole different view of holiness and sin and virtue and righteousness. And that's the foundation of the fear of God. The fear of God is not a fear that God's going to reject me or that God's going to punish me. No, his Christ took the punishment that we deserve at the cross. But it's a sober sense that we're dealing with profound realities here and that God is utterly sovereign. And lastly, let me conclude with this. Keep yourself in the love of God, Jude 22. We're commanded to do that. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We sit at the foot of the cross. Beholding the glory of God, Paul says, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Where is the glory of God displayed? At the cross. We focus on this. We think about the gospel. We think about the God revealed at the cross. And then we think about God's love for me. Oh, God, how could you love me this way? Uh, we read this morning as we started Romans chapter 5, I think the verse 5 verses, and that ends with God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. But the understanding of that love comes in the next five verses where we're told that we are God's enemies, we are helpless, and it goes on and on and describes us in our sinful state. It describes the person that God loved. And it's that knowledge of who we are in our sinfulness and God loving us anyway that causes us to just exalt in the love of God and, and wash ourselves in it and feel the comfort of it. Keep yourself in the love of God. What's our main point? For those who will humble themselves and believe the good news and run to the gospel solution, God promises the gift of righteousness. Can't be earned. It can only be received by renouncing my personal righteousness and receiving God's gift of free righteousness by faith. Without repentance, there is no saving faith. Incredibly, God gives us this gift while simultaneously vindicating his own righteousness. Let's pray.